0: All right, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's, uh, hey, boy, it's hard, hard to believe it's already the end of Advent. Good morning. Ah, good morning. Okay, T, uh, ELH 112, the handout that looks like this: One, three, six, twelve, thirteen. 12, 13.
1: A boy is born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem. Rejoice, therefore, Jerusalem, Alleluia, Alleluia. When Mary Gabriel's words received, words received within her was her son conceived alleluia alleluia tis flesh like ours he's clothed in he's clothed in Though free from man's primeval sin, Alleluia, Alleluia. At this glad birth, with one accord, With one accord, let us rejoice and bless the Lord. Alleluia, alleluia. To Holy Trinity be praised, be praised, be praised. And thanks be given to God always, Alleluia, Alleluia.
0: Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Stir up your power, O Lord, and come and help us by your might that the sins which weigh us down may be quickly lifted by your grace and mercy. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right, the verse of the week from Romans chapter 10. Let's speak this together. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever... Who is whoever? Anyone. It's not quite anyone. That's, that's the tricky thing, because whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it's almost like we're missing a modifier or a description. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord in some way will be saved, because it isn't... Right, it's whoever in faith. Now this is actually... Uh, A really nice little coincidence. Of course, I don't believe in coincidences, but the gradual for the day from Psalm 145, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. So all who call upon the Lord in truth, whoever calls on the name of the Lord in truth, Will be saved now we would say whoever calls on the name okay that's those whoever calls in faith, but the other thing is truth as the psalm says, what is truth Lord. the word who is the Word Christ. Christ whoever calls on the name of the Lord in truth that is in Christ and Who is the source and content of faith? The source and content of faith. The Word, which is Christ. And who gives you faith? And who is the voice of faith? The Holy Spirit. You see this? So whoever, that's this whoever, calls on the name of the Lord... Calling is important. Today is the second commandment. This will show you I'm working ahead to get through Christmas, and I'm a little bit out of it. Uh, And I looked at this this morning, and I said, oh my goodness, Romans 10.13, this would be the perfect verse to go along with the second commandment. And I made a little note to myself, talk about the second commandment. And then I looked down at the catechism, and I saw it's the second commandment. And I thought, oh my goodness, (laughs) I already did it. So whoever calls on the name of the Lord, this is important because it ties into the small catechism about calling on the name of the Lord, which we'll uh, look at in just a minute. What is the name of the Lord? See, because that's... What does it mean that we're calling on the name of the Lord? What is the name of the Lord? Well, let's think about what the evangelist John records uh, whatever you ask in my name. So when you're calling on the name of the Lord, you're calling out to the Lord in accordance with the Lord's promises. The Lord's name is always associated with his promise. God the Father is your Father. You can uh, approach him, as Luther says, as dear children ask their dear Father. Uh, but the name of the Lord is also, you know, Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Jesus Christ, your only Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, amen. So we're calling in the name of Christ. We're calling on the name of the Lord. The name is the thing that has power. The name of God is what works. You can call, on, you can call upon the Lord and have him do things because you have his name. And you call upon him by his name, and the name gives you power. And we'll talk more about this. Here you go. You're welcome. Don't say I never did nothing for you. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Why will they be saved? If they're calling on the name of the Lord in truth, because they trust you will answer their prayer. Okay, yes. Uh, and trust is. What would we? Where did we say? Where would we say trust comes from? If we think about fear, love, and trust in God above all things, all of that, all of those things are hallmarks of faith. So to call on the name of the Lord and to be saved by that is uh, repentant faith. The one who has repentant faith calls upon the name of the Lord and he is saved because the Lord has said, hey, I'm going to save you. Give up your sins and come to me. I'll be the one to take care of you. I'll be the one to save you. Okay, let's speak this again. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What is the second commandment? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. Okay. Uh, Curse, swearing, using satanic arts, lying, and deceiving, all of those are using the name Uh, in works of unbelief. And you're not supposed to associate the name of the Lord with works of unbelief. So don't do any of this by the name of God. Instead, what you are to do is to use the name of God for the purpose and in the way that it was given to you to use. Now, you have God's name, And you can do evil with God's name just like you can do good with God's name because you have the name and where the name is, there is the power. So what you're supposed to do is do what? Call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. Call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. Otherwise called using the name as it was intended and using the name according to its purpose and its function is much more beneficial for you because everything works better when it's used the way it's supposed to be used. Uh, any questions? The, the name of God is like any other gift of God it can be it can be abused. The gift of marriage and sexuality a wonderful gift but it can also be used for evil. The gift of children is a wonderful gift, but it can also be used for evil. Love is a wonderful gift, but it can also be used for evil. All of these good gifts of God are things that are intended for good, but that it is possible for man to pervert and to use in a profane way. Um, Okay, any questions about that? All right to Sunday school. Okay. I I wanna talk a little bit more about this, about the name of the Lord. And to do that, I want to read to you from the Chronicles of Narnia. If you haven't picked up on this yet, you should read these books. They're not for kids only. They're also for adults. And the older you get, the more you will get out of these. But this is from the Chronicles of Narnia. This is, this is the last battle, which is the last book. By the way... If you, if you ever purchase the books, they'll come with, often with numbers on the spine. The numbers on the spine are always wrong. Don't believe them. Don't read them in chronological order. That's what, that's what the publishers have done, and they've destroyed everything by putting them in the wrong order. The order that you should read them is in the order that they were published because the order that they were published is the way that C.S. Lewis meant for you to read. If you read them in chronological order, you get a bunch of answers, but you don't know what they're answering because you never had the questions. You have to read it in the right order so that you start thinking about things and you understand how the world works and the story goes, and then you have questions that other books will answer. An answer isn't good to you if you don't have the question, and if you don't read the books in the right order, which is the order C.S. Lewis wrote them in and published them in, then you won't get anything out of them. Well, you won't get as much out of them. So, rearrange them. And when you look down at our library down there, you'll notice that the numbers are not in the right order because they're cataloged by their publication date, not by their, the number on the spine, which is an editorial mark and should be ignored. But I don't have any strong feelings about it, so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we can tell. <laughs> yeah.
0: I have strange hobby horses. Okay, let me let me give you some context of the passage I'm about to read for you. The Last Battle is a book that essentially talks about the end of the world. And it's the end of Narnia, and there uh, there have been people pretending to be Aslan, who of course is Jesus, pretending what does that sound like? Fal- there will be false prophets. They're pretending to be Aslan and making, you know, telling the people to do things that Aslan would never have them do and uh they, uh, the Narnians ally themselves with the people called the Kalormines, which are like foreigners who came in and then took, brought in false gods and, and, and all of that. And, and the leader of the Kalormines is a fellow named Rishta Tarkhan, okay? which doesn't really matter, it's just you're going to hear the name. He's the leader of the bad guys. There's a stable, and this stable is where the fake Aslan has been hiding. And every day, the fake Aslan will pop his head out and say, Aslan decrees this, and then all the people will listen. Well, the faithful Narnians who know that it's not Aslan end up going to war with the unfaithful people, and they lose, and the unfaithful people win and they kill a bunch of the allies and the good beasts and the nice people and then they take a bunch of other people prisoner and then they talk about how powerful Aslan is so they start throwing people into the barn and uh, expecting that Aslan is going to be evil and kill them. Into
1: the what?
0: Into the barn. Yeah, the stable. Into the little... Barn, barn. Barn. yeah. Into the little stable, okay? So here's, here's what, and, yeah, okay. And then the Calarmenes worship a false god named Tash, who is essentially C.S. Lewis's depiction of the devil. Okay, the Calormene soldiers outside screamed, Tash, Tash, and banged the door. If Tash wanted their own captain, Tash must have him. They, at any rate, did not want to meet Tash. For a moment or two, Tyrion, that's, he's the, uh, he is the king, the rightful king of Narnia, and he's the leader of the faithful ones who fought and lost. For a moment or two, Tyrion did not know where he was or even who he was. They've just been thrown into the stable, and it's dark. Then he steadied himself, blinked, and looked around. It was not dark inside the stable, as he had expected. He was in a strong light. That was why he was blinking. He turned to look at Rishta Tarkhan, but Rishta was not looking at him. Rishta gave a great wail and pointed. Then he put his hands before his face and fell flat, face downward on the ground. Tyrion looked in the direction where the Tarkhan had pointed, and then he understood. A terrible figure was coming toward them. It was far smaller than the shape they had seen from the tower, though still much bigger than a man, and it was the same. It had a vulture's head and four arms. Its beak was open and its eyes blazed. A croaking voice came from its beak. "'Thou hast called, my, that ha, thou hast called me into Narnia, Rishta Tarkhan. Here I am. What hast thou to say?' But the Tarkhan neither lifted his face from the ground nor said a word. He was shaking like a man with a bad hiccup. He was brave enough in battle, but half his courage had left him earlier that night when he first began to suspect that there might be a real Tash. The rest of it had left him now. With a sudden jerk, like a hen stooping to pick up a worm, Tash pounced on the miserable Rishta and tucked him under the upper of his right two arms. Then Tash turned his head sideways to fix Tyrion with one of his terrible eyes, for, of course, having a bird's head, he couldn't look at you straight. But immediately from behind Tash, strong and calm as the summer sea, a voice said, "Begone, monster, and take your lawful prey to your own place in the name of Aslan and Aslan's great father, the emperor over the sea. The hideous creature vanished with the Tarkan still under its arm. Why am I reading you this passage to talk about the name of the Lord and calling on the name of the Lord and hallowing the name of the Lord? Can you put the pieces together? The key is in what Ash says to Rishta Tarkhan when he appears, Rishta Tarkhan, thou hast called me into Narnia. Now, what shall thou say to me? You called my name and I came. What do you want? Mm-hmm. There is power in a name. We call on the name of the Lord. And where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. That's why we have an invocation. What does it mean to invoke? To call. To invoke. If I invoke something, it means I am calling upon If I invoke the authority of my office, it means I am calling upon something that exists to make it real. When we invoke the name of the Lord, we are using it. We are calling upon it that the Lord would hear and be with his people and do to us what he has promised to do. But there are other names and there are others who will call, or who will come when you call their name. Why is one reason I urge everyone to run like the plague away from any kind of witchcraft or practice of the occult? Pardon me? Uh, Well, sure, you're calling on the wrong name, but, but you are calling on the name of something that does exist and maybe you don't believe that Tash exists, but whether you believe it or not doesn't really matter. If you call on his name and you don't believe, it has the same effect as calling upon his name when you do believe and you call him to yourself. And Tash will come to you and Tash will say, you called and here I am. That's one of the points that Lewis is trying to make call upon a false god, and you're going to realize right quick that false god doesn't mean the god doesn't exist. False god means it isn't a god. That's what the Christians said in the early church, uh, arguing against the Romans, who accused them of uh, treason against the state. And they actually, ironically enough, the Roman pagans accused the Christians of uh, atheism. Because they said, you don't call on, on the, the gods. And that means because you're calling on this strange god, you are an atheist. And they, they said, if your gods were gods, we'd call on them, but we don't call on the names of demons. False gods are demons. You call upon their name and you call a demon. There was a great article, um, a great article that was published in Gottesdienst the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy, which we have a subscription to. There's an, there's an issue down in the library, uh, but it was an issue passed. And the f- fellow was talking about the riots on January 6th. And he basically the article was this. If you call on the name of demons, don't be surprised when demons come. And he said, I'm not saying that what happened on January 6th was a bunch of people possessed by demons, but at at the beginning of the year, we had a prayer that was a prayer to demons. And then a few days after a prayer to demons, you had an outbreak of what really can only be considered demonic-like behavior. And uh, he said, The Lord Lord hears even the prayers of the unjust people, and He'll give them what they ask. And he got in trouble, and he was censored by Synod because they said, No, God doesn't hear the prayers of people who don't believe. And I will go on record on a hot mic and say, Synod is wrong. If Synod thinks God doesn't hear the prayers of people that, or the cries of people who don't believe, then Synod doesn't think that God is omniscient god turns a deaf ear and there's a difference between god hearing and god hearing (laughs) see this is this is a different use of the word hearing there's a hearing that is an active listening and granting the petition and there's a hearing that says i know that they are calling out and that this is what they're asking for and scripture says that god will give those over to the desires of their hearts The sinners who ask to commit sins, the sinners who want to rebel against God, he'll give them over to their desires. Okay, fine, go, get out of here. He's not hearing their prayers in the sense that they're calling upon him in faith and trust for good. He hears their prayers because it's something that's going on and it's wicked and he gives them over to wickedness. That's what you get. Don't call on the name of a demon, don't call on the name of someone who is not God because you're going to find out quick. Just because they are false gods doesn't mean they don't exist. All it means is that they are not gods. This is one reason why the second commandment is so critically important, especially in the modern day. Because what is the most What is the most prominent religion in the United States of America? I'll give you a hint. It's not Christianity. Yes, I would say paganism. Paganism is the primary religion of the United States. And we live in a bubble within this community because within this community, you wouldn't look around and say, this is a pagan community. Now, you might know folks that maybe don't go to church, and you know that's, that's on them. Maybe they should be going to church, they should. And everybody knows folks who ought to be going to church, but the community as a whole is a pretty Christian community. Uh, I was stunned when we moved here and, and saw that for a town of 1,200 people, there were six or seven different churches. But that's amazing, and, and maybe if you've lived here all your life, you don't realize how amazing that is. But let me tell you, that is very uh, incredible. It's incredible that the public school will still sing songs at their Christmas program that have Jesus in them. This year, the, they saying Jesus loves me. The preschoolers saying Jesus loves me at the public school. If you're born and raised here and you don't know anything else, you don't think that it's that incredible. But let me tell you, it is. Is it is incredible, absolutely incredible. That's one reason why I very unironically say that I am convinced that heaven is gonna be like Mound City a little bit. <laughs> no, really, I, everybody laughs because they think that I'm being funny and I'm not, I'm being very serious. This is, a, it, this is kind of a special area, but it's in a bubble. The rest of the world isn't like this. Maybe you have other small town communities that are like this, but by and large, The world is not like this. The world is full of paganism. Paganism is a religion. It's it's the practice of witchcraft, the practice of the occult. I told you about the tarot deck that was uh, Mary the Blessed Virgin of all tarot deck, because even pagans, they want to claim Mary as their own. Well, she's a woman. She's a strong, powerful, independent woman, and we're gonna claim her as our own too. We want to worship Mary too. There's all kinds of hideous things in the world around you right now and there's all kinds of people calling on names that are not the true name. And the Lord has most certainly given the people of this country over to what they asked for. But, but this, is, this is an important illustration. This illustration of calling upon Tash and having Tash actually show up. Don't be surprised when you call on the name of a demon and a demon actually shows up. You know, give it to the Middle Ages. They were wrong, but they at least understood this, that when you call on the name of a demon, a demon actually comes uh, because in, when you look at the old grimoires and books of, of magic, all of this it involves the power of a demon. How do you get what you want? You summon a demon, and then you bind the demon in the name of... The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I bind you, demon. Now you belong to me under the power of Jesus and now you're going to make that girl fall in love with me. And the demon goes, well, shucks, you you got me. I guess I'll make her fall in love with you. That's what they thought. But it's like, you know, at least they knew that when you call on the name, something comes. The paganism of the modern day is so bad because they say, well, we're going to call on all these names. We're going to do all this stuff. We're going to do our spells and incantations. And they don't believe that there's actually something listening. Yes? So I had a employee, because I've got thousands
1: of them, like i over 23 years, and his wife and him participated in all this crazy stuff. And he even invited me to come and watch one of their torch ceremonies in the woods. I'm like, no, thank you. Yeah. But they participated in all this debauchery with open marriage and orgy and all this stuff, and then now they can't figure out why they're divorced. Yeah,
0: well, go figure. <laughs> You know, I'm sort of a Facebook marketplace freak because in the same way that I'm kind of a garage sale freak. Not because I want to buy stuff, because I'm nosy. (laughs) I like to go to garage sales because I want to see what's there. And you know, every now and then you find something, you go, oh, this is actually pretty cool. Uh, but I'm nosy, I like to see what be, but it's, it's, it's bad, now. it's not fun anymore because you look at all this stuff and people say, like, well, I have this witch's altar and I have a new one, so I'm gonna get rid of this old one. Or I, I, I'm making my homemade black beeswax candles for all of your rituals, come and buy my, and you think, I don't, I, here, come get some sage. I, I grow my own sage and I make sage bundles for you to burn in your home to contact the spirits. It's bad out there. Yes?
1: Your description of, of uh, what you wrote, the narrative, uh-huh. and then part of the narrative there rang, a, sort of rang a bell with me. It sounded like the Babylonian captivity. Well, <laughs>
0: there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> Here's, here are a couple things I want to point out from this illustration that Lewis presented. One, Tash is described as having the head of a vulture. That's, that's not an accident or something that's to make him look scary. Ooh, a vulture head. What does a vulture do? It eats, it, eats dead. Dead. it eats the dead. And then what does the voice say when it tells him to get out of here? It doesn't stop to save Rishtatar Khan. Tarket Khan made his bed and now he's going to lay in it. He called on that demon and he wanted him now the demon has him. He says, take your righteous prey. I'm not going to try and save Rish he That's what he wanted, and now he's getting what he wanted. But I'm going to say to that devil, yeah, he's yours, but now get out of here. Those are two really important things. One, he preys on the dead. Where are demons found? Think about, in, think about the Gadarene demoniac that Jesus finds, where does he live? The Gadarene, the Gadarene demoniac that Jesus, that Jesus casts out the unclean spirit. In a cave? In a cave? Well, you're, you're warm. It's not quite a cave, but he doesn't live in his house. He lives away. He lives in the tombs. He lives among the dead. He lives away from people. He lives in the place of the dead. And this demoniac lives in the tombs and cuts himself with pottery and stays out there. He lives with the dead. The vulture eats the dead. The prey of the vulture are the dead. There's there's connections there. And the dead whom the vulture takes are the vulture's righteous prey. Remember, the other thing that Lewis says, this isn't from Narnia, this is just from something else, written for adults, there are only going to be two people on the last day, only two kinds of people, the people that said to Jesus, thy will be done, and the people that, to whom Jesus says, thy will be done. You wanted Tash? You can have Tash. Ah, you wanted me, you may have me. Those are only two people, two kinds of people, that's all and Tash will have the dead. So use the name of the Lord well. This the translation that says, you know, sa- using satanic arts, don't curse, don't lie, don't swear, don't use satanic arts. I remember growing up and thinking, why does that even have to be there? Who's using satanic arts? And now you look and, and the better question is who isn't using satanic arts. I mean, everybody in their neighbor is. Here's a startling statistic by the by third or fourth grade, your kids have already been exposed to drugs, pornography, and the occult. By third and fourth grade! Here's another really depressing statistic. So I'm working on a paper because, because I'm going to be presenting a paper in a sectional at the seminary for their big theological symposium. And the, my paper is called... Uh, Temple of an Unholy Spirit. And it's on the demonic character of pornography and its destruction of the body. And some of the research, most of this paper is of a theological nature. But some of it, I've had to be a little bit scientific and just look at some studies and and get some data to prove a point. And it is depressing you know that it's an epidemic, but when you look at the statistics, my goodness, it's just horrid. And here is a startling statistic. Between 45 and 60% of youth 11 and under are already using pornography. Can you believe that? Call on the name of the Lord. Know the names and call on the right names. Stay away from things that are evil and don't call on the names of evil. Now, that soapbox is off. Uh, th- th- call, the second commandment is really big and important. And I remember being taught in my confirmation class, you know, the extent of the second commandment was really: well, don't, don't say, oh my God. I said, well why is saying oh my God bad? Well, how would you like it if someone said, Oh my bill? <laughs> have you ever have you ever heard that? That excellent? How how would you like it if someone oh my Nancy, what's going on? Oh my Bruce. Well, you know, you don't like your name being used like that, so don't use God's name like that. And that was the extent of it. And I thought, well that's stupid. Is that, that's what the second commandment's about? Just the second commandment. The only thing that it prohibits is me saying, oh my God. And then you live your life and you accidentally say, oh my God, what's going on? And you go, oh no, I've committed a cardinal sin. I've said, oh my God. I mean, don't say, oh my God, like that. Because the Lord has not given his name to be a, a glib and flippant interjection. Say something else. Uh, but it's so much more than that. The, the name of the Lord is an incredibly powerful thing. The name of the Lord is put on you in baptism, and it's the name of the Lord that, that gives you protection. The name of the Lord is put upon the temple, and the temple is where people dwell. Or, excuse me, where the Lord dwells. He says it. Put my name upon the temple, and I will dwell there. That's a promise. Where the name of the Lord is, that's where the Lord is. And what does St. Paul call your bodies? A temple. The Lord's name is not on the big temple anymore. We don't need to worry about, oh, we've got to build back the temple in Jerusalem and and make sure that that temple stands and is never torn down. God doesn't live in that temple anymore. God lives in your temple now. The incarnation guarantees that God lives in your temple. And your temple now has the name of the Lord on it and he's there. The name of the Lord is a really, 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 really big and powerful thing. And the second commandment is
1: huge.
0: And it can do a, a great deal of harm. That's why I've, I've said this before. You know, When you say, God damn it, or God damn you, uh, you better be careful because God just might. And I don't think you really want that. Yeah, that's. I mean, I would. That's still breaking the second commandment because the name of the Lord is not. It's not supposed to be. You know, that's using it outside of its purpose. Find a different interjection. Yeah,
1: she could have said, "Oh my goodness."
0: But it doesn't matter. To it doesn't matter. It's just an expression. It has no meaning. But for us, it does have meaning because the name has meaning. Okay. So, now uh, to something completely different. That was Monty Python reference. Okay. <laughs> um, we need to finish this, this little bit up about death. We'll have another thing next week, and then when I get back from Christmas vacation, we'll, have, we'll start the new, the new stuff. Okay? So I want to look at a few passages here, and you don't have to follow along with me. I'm going to hit them kind of quickly. Romans 5.12 is the first one. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses, blah, 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 blah. And then he continues on to say, in one man, uh, which is Christ, uh, death is done away with, which is actually part of the sermon today. But the point that I want to make here is uh, sin entered the world, and what is the consequence of sin entering the, into the world? That death. death. Yeah, death is actually subservient to sin. If there isn't any sin, then there isn't any death. See, so d- death doesn't exist in places where there, aren't, where there isn't sin, which is why, uh, one reason why you aren't afraid of the baptismal font. What germs are going to be in the baptismal font? None. What germs are going to be a part of the baptismal rite? None. What germs are going to be in the wine or in the bread? None. Why? Why isn't there going to be any, any disease or sickness or germ or bacteria or anything there? That's where, okay, that's where, yes, that's where Christ is for the... What does it do? Yes, for the remission of sins. It's in the catechism. For uh, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is and salvation. Where there is forgiveness of sins, there's life and salvation. Where is there death? In the place where there's no forgiveness of sins. We're not afraid of the baptismal font, we're not afraid of the sacrament, because those are places where there is forgiveness of sins. And where there is forgiveness of sins, there is only ever the possibility of life and salvation. I told you the story about one of the seminary professors who went to Africa in the HIV-ridden area. It was 100% of the population and then this visitor. And he went to the church, 100% of the people had it. And they, they communed only by common cup. They don't use the individual cups. By the way, this is another soapbox. If you're afraid of germs, the common cup is actually more sanitary. And you can take my word for that or, if you don't want to believe me, I can give you a bunch of scientific studies that have been done since individual cups were first introduced, around about the 1950s and 60s, but every study that has ever been conducted says that the chalice is a more germ-free environment. So, if you're afraid of germs, the chalice is actually the better way to go for you. Just, just as an aside. Um, but anyway, Everybody in this congregation had AIDS. And they're all drinking from the common cup. All sharing a cup. And then it comes time for the, the, the end of the distribution of the sacrament. And there's still a, 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 quite a bit left in the chalice. And so those pastors give it to my professor friend and say, here, you, you consume this. And he says, oh, oh, ah." Uh, no, no, that's, that's okay. And they say, no, 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 it's an honor. You're the guest pastor. You, you do this. And he said, no, I, I, do, I don't know. I, I don't know if, if I really can. And he said, no, 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 do it. And he just kind of said, well, okay. And he said he took the chalice and he just downed the whole thing. And I've said this before too. If you think that the common cup is gross because other people drink out of it. Stop for a minute and think about your pastor who drinks everything that's left. Every skin flake, every bit of backwash, every little crumb, every mustache hair. (laughs) Pastor drinks it all. Okay, so here he is drinks the whole chalice. And he said, you know what? It was in that moment I realized, why am I being afraid of the thing that the Lord has said is only ever gonna give me life? I he I said, boy, that was one of those moments where, my, where your faith gets tested. And it's that conflict of faith and reason. And the, that conflict of faith and reason we've seen quite a bit in the last year with, oh, well, how am, I, how am I gonna distribute the sacrament? Should I wear gloves to touch Christ's body? Or I'm not gonna do this baptism because I'm afraid that, I could probably cause an illness from the baptism. Who is who's the one doing the baptism? Is it you or is it God? And even if it was you, it's still God's work, and I'm pretty sure last time I checked, God was a lot bigger and better than you. I think we're going to be okay here, Richard. Okay. So uh, wherever there is sin, there is death. Wherever there is no sin, there is no death. Uh, so, then this ties in with Romans 6, of course, because the wages of sin is death, and I think often we, we just gloss over the fact that the word there is wages. Uh, wages are an important picture in the New Testament that you get what you have earned. So, when it comes to death, death is what you have earned when you are a sinner. Uh, the wages of sin, when you sin, you're doing work and you will get paid for your work. That's why we talk about the thing that you're going to be judged for on the last day is not, well, did you have enough faith? It's going to be, what are your works? Was I in prison, and did you come and visit me? Was I hungry, and did you feed me? If yes, if no, there are consequences. The Athanasian Creed, all men will be judged by their works, and those who have done good will enter into eternal life and those who have done evil into eternal fire. So you are judged according to your works. You are receiving the payment for your work. So on the last day, what it's going to be is the people that did good works and you know that when you do good works, who is it working? Yeah, it's Christ. It is not me, but it is Christ in me. All the good that I do is Christ. So the father sees the good works, and, or the son guess, is the judge. He says, ah, yes, you're in me. You're good. We're, we're brothers here. And to the other ones who did evil, he said, well, you aren't in me. They say, yeah, but we did, we did this stuff. And he goes, okay, right. Here comes your just reward. Tash will come and take you, and you will be his righteous prey because you are dead. Okay? Wages. And, of course, there's the fact that you're getting paid an unfair wage because you're not actually getting what you really truly deserve Uh, that's why again you know I've said this before and I will continue saying this till the day I die you don't want God to be fair you don't want to worship a God who is fair because a God who is fair excuse me a God who is fair means that that God is going to give you exactly what you deserve and you don't you don't deserve anything good so you want a God that is unfair because only an unfair God will offer grace because grace, by definition, is not fair. Grace goes against what the norm should be. If you are sentenced to 50 years in prison and the judge says "Um, this is what you've earned by your actions, however, you have a family and I think it's more important that you take care of your family. I think you've learned learned your lesson. I'm gonna sentence you to um, a thousand hours of community service instead. Have you deserved that sentence? No, you haven't. You deserve the 50 years in prison. So what you're receiving is mercy, but it's undeserved and it isn't fair. Because then the other guy who did, he got his 50 years, he says, well, why are you putting me away for my 50 years? And he he just gets community service. You know, because life isn't fair. And you better just, you know, you gotta suck it up, buttercup. And God's not fair either, but it's always to your benefit. Okay, so the other thing that I wanna look at is James. which is just a great book of the Bible. I love the book of James. Whoops. Hebrews, James, there we go. One fifteen. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Think, think about this in terms of the creation, or uh, excuse me, the fall narrative. Okay? When desire has conceived, where is the desire? in the fall narrative, in Genesis 3? The desire, where is the desire? Right, I wanna be like God. Right, be like God. And, and remember that I said the greatest sin of Adam and Eve is not that they plucked the fruit and took a bite out of it. The greatest sin is that within themselves they decided, I want to be like God. They sinned with pride before they transgressed the, the words of the law. They al- already broke the law. Um, St. Augustine says one cannot commit a sin unless one is already a sinner. So the sin that Adam and Eve committed, they couldn't have committed until they had already made up their minds and their wills and chosen sin and evil over what is good. That's the desire, my desire to be like God. So desire conceives and it gives birth to sin. So you think about it and then you do it. That's why, by the way, when Jesus says things like, You know, he who looks at a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. He who uh, thinks about stealing or he who thinks a mean thought about his brother has already murdered his brother because desire conceives and brings about sin. That's why there's a difference between stealing and coveting because coveting is the thought and stealing is the deed, but they're both wicked. Everything that, you know, the thought of evil in the heart or the the thought of evil against a person in the heart is the desire, and the desire is sinful, but the desire will also conceive. If you hate your brother in your heart, what are you eventually going to do? You're going to, out loud, speak a harsh word to him, or you're going to do something to him and harm him in some kind of a way. And that is committing murder, because remember, committing murder in the flesh doesn't just mean taking the life, but doing any kind of harm to to the body, or really to the spirit, and causing any kind of harm. You are called to do no harm. Causing any harm is murder. Thinking about causing any harm is murder, because that's murder of the heart, and it leads to murder in the deed. So the desire uh, conceives and gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. You are dead. Um, there's a really fantastic quote. Well, actually, let me read this quote first. This is from the Didache, near and dear to my heart. Remember that in the Didache, there's two ways. That's why I, my preference is always to talk about Christianity as the way, because that's what the early Christians used to call it. And when you talk about Christianity, what does it make you think of? Christianity, just generally speaking. Jesus. Oh, okay, sure. Uh, and and what do you believe? To to me, Christianity, things of what is Christianity? Well, these are the things that I believe. At, to be a Christian I have to believe these things. To be a Christian, I have to say the creed, because the creed then is what I believe. And then Christianity gets to be, well, it's check boxes of, do I believe this? Do I believe this? Do I believe, oh, look at that! I, 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 I can in intellectually assent to all of these things, and that means I'm a Christian. But Christianity isn't that, it's a way, a way of life, a way of walking. You're a Christian, you know, you can't be called a pilgrim if you're not walking. <laughs> or if you're not moving. A Christian life is one of motion. Rolling stone gathers no moss. No Christian should be gathering moss. You should always be in motion. Faith can't be stagnant, it has to work. So there is the way of life, which is how you live, the, the life and the living, and then there is the way of death, which is the same thing, the way of life, the way of living, but in two different directions. So you know what constitutes the way of life but now here the way of death is this first of all it is evil and completely cursed for something to be cursed cursed what does that mean like in the catechism you don't curse somebody the act of cursing the act of cursing would be like uh, calling upon God's name or, or even uh, you could go as far as saying invoking another name to cause harm uh, on another person. But in this sense, to be cursed is to be damned by God. Um, murders, adulteries, lusts, sexual immoralities, thefts, idolatries, magic arts, sorceries, I don't know the difference between the two, between magic arts and between sorceries. I'm still working on that research. When I find out what the difference is, I'll tell you. I, part of it has to do with abortion, because there are, there, you could go to the sorcerer who would give you a potion, and, then the, and typically what the potion would be was uh, an abortifacient that you would drink and then kill your baby. Uh, like a little hemlock potion, or a potion that would kill you or somebody else, assisted suicide. None of this stuff is new. It's all been happening, and uh, the church has already talked about it and said this is bad. Um, Robberies, false testimonies, hypocrisies, duplicity. That's why I don't let you commune here if you're going to go back and commune at the Baptist church, because that's called being duplicitous, having two faces like Janice, the two-faced Roman God, deceit, pride, malice, stubbornness, greed, abusive language, jealousy, audacity, arrogance, boastfulness. How many of the Ten Commandments does that cover? (laughs) All ten and more. No, A lot of the language that Luther gets in his catechism about, well, it means not only that you shouldn't take a knife and stab somebody, but also this, this, and this. You shouldn't do those either. And that you should be doing this with the positive spin. That wasn't really new either. All of that is uh, consistent with the history of uh, how the church teaches these things. Okay? But this is the one I really want to read to you. And this is from Cardinal uh, Ratzinger, who is, of course, one of my most favorite theologians in the entire universe, and that is Pope Benedict XVI, that, that fella is an absolute gift to the church at large. In my top three favorite and most influential theologians of all time, this is what he writes. Man is a being who himself does not live forever, true, but is necessarily delivered up to death. Why is it necessarily delivered to death? Why couldn't he have just said, man is delivered to death? Why that, necessarily? Why the adverb? Who are you? What are you? Sinner. Yeah, sinner. I mean, you're right, you are dust. But... Sinner. You are a sinner. Do you wear sinful flesh? Yes. Okay, you're conceived and born in sin. You have sinful flesh. Do you live in a sinful world? Do you want to do good? Yes. Does your desire to do good save the fact that you are a sinner? No, it doesn't. So you necessarily die because it is always necessary that sin be put to death. For him, that is for man, since he has no continuance in himself, isn't that beautiful? You cannot continue in yourself because you are finite. Dust you are and to dust you shall return. Memento mori. Remember that you will die. Survival, from a purely human point of view, can only become possible through his, that is man's, continuing to exist in another. What do we call a baptized Christian? They are?
1: A new man.
0: Okay, a new man. Okay, a saint. This is catechumenate language. Baptized uh, That's a candidate. What is the Christian? It's, the, it's all in the pronouns. Remember the pronouns. There's a difference between... This and this. Yes, you are baptized into Christ, and that is the act. The baptismal candidate is baptized into Christ because there is motion, but the baptized is in Christ. You dwell in Christ. That is the description in the New Testament of a baptized Christian, one who is in Christ we talk about that all the time for those who are in Christ Jesus you are in Christ Jesus you are in Christ and that means that you are continuing to exist not of your own accord in death but you exist in another namely Christ Jesus and because Christ Jesus is infinite you are infinite what happens to Jesus happens to you. Jesus lives, and that means that if you are in him, you live in the everlasting glory with him. So your, your existence continues. Um, okay, we're going to stop there. We'll, next week, we're going to look at a hymn so that we can have an epiphany, one ready to go. The week after that, we'll, I will be out of town. And then the week after that, we'll start a new talk about what everybody wants to know, which is what happens when you die, what is hell, what is heaven, what does the last day mean, what is judgment, and all of that, okay? That'll be super, super, super fun. I'm very excited. So we'll see you all at the altar.